Welcome to Episode 3 in the second season of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and I'm here with our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center. Our main topic today is the expulsion of Roman Baber from the Ontario Progressive Conservative Caucus for his dissent against the lockdown measures imposed by public health officials and his party leader, Premier Doug Ford. Mr. Baber, the member of Provincial Parliament for York Centre, sent a letter to media outlets citing evidence that the government was causing more harm than good in the fight against COVID-19. We'll take a look at his dissent and the government's response. But first, we'll open up with some comments on the news that the Canadian federal government is increasing its crackdown on social media with legislation to be unveiled in a couple of months. There's a story in the Globe and Mail from a few days ago titled, Liberal Government Revising Plans to Regulate Social Media in Light of U.S. Capitol Riot. Oh, another government attack on free speech. John, what's up with that? Well, it's very scary because these people are actually serious about supposedly protecting us by taking away our free speech rights. Uh, I've often said, and I'll I'll never stop saying it, that governments never take away your rights and freedoms without providing some kind of nice sounding pretext or rationale. And uh, in the 22nd century, if I'm getting the centuries correct, the uh, the big theme of, of, of safety and we got to protect you and keep everybody safe seems to be uh, more dominant than uh, previous pretexts brought forward by by other regimes in different countries at different times in history. Uh, you've had you know the communists taking away your rights and freedoms in order to stop capitalist exploitation and to build the workers' paradise. Uh, we've had Adolf Hitler's Nazi regime taking away rights and freedoms in the name of uh, the greater good of Germany and Lebensraum and so on and so forth. Uh, you've had countries that uh, take away rights and freedoms in the name of fighting communism. So, oh, we got to keep everybody safe from the communists. So we're going to you know, clamp down on uh, people being allowed to hold meetings, uh, speak freely, uh, criticize the government, uh, so on and so forth. So uh, national security, fighting terrorism, there's always a good cause for violating your privacy rights and taking away your free speech rights in the Soviet Union and other communist countries for many decades, including through to uh, today's North Korea and communist China. You've got communist regimes that uh, persecute religion because you know religion is the opiate of the people, prevents them from recognizing the truth of Marxism. And uh, religion just gets in the way of building the workers' paradise. Uh, now, today in Alberta and other provinces, you've got churches shut down or severe restrictions on uh, on church attendance. And now it's in the name of supposedly protecting everybody and public health. So there's always a rationale put forward. So here well, we doesn't got- this one doesn't this one seem particularly thin? I'm looking at this headline. Liberal government revising plan to regulate social media in light of U.S. Capitol riot. Number one, it didn't happen in our country. And number two, it wasn't a social media event. <laughs> <laughs> Both excellent so, points. Uh, well, okay. 
Anyway, uh, please continue. It's also it's also inconsistent because I am not aware of any politician on either side of the Canada-US border saying that we need to crack down on social media when social media was very likely being used to uh, encourage and facilitate the uh, Black Lives Matter and Antifa violent protests and burning buildings to the ground and looting and just destroying property and, and, and so on. Uh, it wasn't until the Capitol was stormed that you know, suddenly uh, the media types uh, suddenly turned into these very law and order people who, uh, you know, point out how very incorrect it is for, for people to physically uh, break through barriers and storm a building. And yes, I agree. I, I think the, uh, the way that the, the march in Washington, D.C. should have continued past the White House, uh, sorry, should have continued past the Congress. And they. I, I don't think it was right for people to break through barriers and enter into the Congress buildings. I think it was totally 100% wrong to do that. And I can't help but notice that uh, these same media types have tried to characterize the uh, Antifa Black Lives Matters uh, violence in the United States in many cities and tried to say, oh, well, it, it's peaceful protest. And, you know, we kind of have to be all sympathetic and understanding because it's being done in the name of fighting racism. So that's a really good cause. So if things kind of get out of hand and, and uh, people get killed and uh, buildings are burned down and uh, uh, store windows are smashed in, we have to be kind of sympathetic and understanding because they're doing it for the really good cause of fighting racism. Well, no, law and order and the, the rule of law means that the law is applied equally to all people, all circumstances. So you're either you're okay with violence or, or you're not, you know, I'm not. And I don't think storming the Capitol uh, in terms of a physical entry was, was good. I think it was a bad thing, but so have, so have all the riots been in the past. But I, I agree with your points there. The pretext here in Canada for censoring the, the internet is even flimsier than, uh, <laughs> That's some of these other examples. Yeah, so, I know. So, well, quoting, quoting from the Globe Mail article, uh, Mr. Trudeau's letter to Mr. Gibo, that would be the uh, heritage minister, Mr. Trudeau said to Mr. Gibo that Mr. Gibo should work with other ministers, quote, to take action on combating hate groups and online hate and harassment, ideologically motivated violent extremism, and terrorist organizations. Well, that's a big catch-all. Uh, I think it, I think it's appropriate for the speaking of terrorist organizations. Uh, there too, we should try to have a, a non-ideological assessment and look at whether they're advocating for violence or not. Not not so much, you know, is it because they are uh, because of the underlying ideology? But it's one thing for the authorities to obtain search warrants to you know spy on certain criminals that are plotting to, you know, blow up parliament or something. Uh, it's quite another to lump in terrorist organizations with so-called online hate and harassment. Now, we already have criminal code provisions against the willful promotion of hatred. Yeah, so, for example, this, we had this already, don't we? We have this law already. It's, it's kind of, we already have a law against drunk driving. So, why would we want to take the extra step of banning private car ownership when we've got a law against drunk driving that we need to enforce? Uh, but you could say, well, let's take it a step further and take away everybody's right to drive 
And that will really cut down on impaired driving. I'm not sure if we would, because if somebody's willing to break the law by way of uh, being intoxicated while driving, that same person would also break the law against driving a car. So I don't know if it would do much good, but this is the same kind of thinking here. It's like, well, we, we really got to crack down on drunk driving. So let's let's ban private car ownership and let's have everybody uh, ride it using only public transit and let's test all the bus drivers uh, but before they start their shift to make sure they're not intoxicated. It's like, well, no, we, we just need to enforce the existing law. So there are laws against the willful promotion of hatred against an identifiable group. So if you are saying, you know, that all fill in the blank, you know, ethnic group or or gender or religious group, if if all people belonging to that group, you know, should be killed and exterminated. If you were to say something like that, you would run afoul of the criminal law. It's already in place. If somebody says something like that on the internet, uh, that could be, and if they're identifying themselves, <laughs> those emails can be forwarded to the police and the police can go and, and prosecute that person for willful promotion of hatred. So that's already in place. But now we have to um, take action to combat hate groups and online hate and harassment. Well, the big problem is uh, hate is entirely subjective. I could hear things that I find hateful uh, some of the radical feminist garbage that I had to read when I was in law school because it was required reading. Uh, I personally found it to be hateful towards men. Now, somebody else could read the exact same text, uh, even somebody who disagrees with radical feminism, they could read it and say, no, it's not hateful. It's, it's just the expression of an opinion. Uh, other people would say it is absolutely not hateful, but it's purely subjective what you perceive to be hateful. So there's a problem right off the bat. So that leads to the next question always, well, who is going to determine what is hateful or not? Right. Oh, is dissent hateful? That's the thing. That's what everybody's worried about, that they're going to criminalize dissent. That's their ultimate goal. Or their ultimate goal is just sort of give them goalposts that are easy to move around, and they'll just shift them around depending on their target. So, I mean, that's the, the fear, right? Well, have you noticed, Kevin, how frequently things get denounced as hateful? And it used to be 20 or 30 years ago, I think people would say, you know, if somebody was uh, engaging in, in um, Holocaust denial or other vile uh, anti-Semitic speech, you would sometimes hear say, oh, well, you know, that's, that's hateful. Okay. And, you know, subjective, but, you know, I'd be on the side of, of uh, people saying it is hateful, even though there's no scientific measurement or standard to determine if it's hateful or not. But... Uh, these days, I mean, if you want to reform uh, immigration policy or if you think that securing your borders with a big wall is, is a good idea, you'll be called hateful. If you disagree with the politically correct narrative on Aboriginal issues, uh, and of course, I just leave it at that. I mean, that's a huge mm. topic. And if we're going to talk about it at all, we should devote a whole show to it. But, you know, if you criticize current Aboriginal policy, you'll be called hateful. If you disagree with the LGBTQ agenda, you'll be called hateful. And again, I'm talking about civil disagreement with a political agenda that threatens uh, the right of parents to raise and educate their own children as they deem best, right? If you speak out against that, you're hateful. Uh, I've heard pro-life groups being denounced as hateful. 
uh, anti-feminist speech is hateful. And of course, any, any disagreement with the transgender narrative is hateful. So this puts us in a situation if, if government has the power to, uh, quote, take action on combating hate groups and online hate and harassment, ideologically motivated violent extremism and terrorist organizations, uh, again, lumping very different things into one broad category. But that means that the likes of uh, woke social justice warriors, uh, like our current prime minister, are going to be in charge of censoring people who disagree with their politically correct ideology. That's the bottom line. Yes. And we have ample we have ample evidence of that because uh, again, uh, anything that any disagreement with uh, current Aboriginal policy, with radical feminism, with transgenderism, with the LGBTQ political agenda, any disagreement is already being denounced as hateful. So it's a serious threat to to free speech. Right, yeah. And there's a, not to mention the problem of jurisdiction as well. I think that is actually mentioned farther down in the uh, article, the Globe and Mail article that I'm looking at anyway, with with uh, an expert dissenting against the government's proposal or proposals uh, saying that uh, stated plans, quote, stated plans to regulate social media content may be in conflict with Canada's recent commitments under the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement on Free Trade. Of course, a lot of the social platforms are based out of the United States. So what happens at that point? Do they start subpoenaing people down in the United States to reveal identities of people? Uh, I'm not sure how this works. You know, Are they going to have to come up with some kind of international agreement based on our draconian free speech laws that uh, they may not agree with down in the United States? I'm not sure how this is going to work. Well, where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> Oh, so, that's encouraging. And that's, Thanks, that's, that goes for good and for evil, right? People, mm. people make excuses for not doing the right thing. And, you know, oh, we just can't because of this and this and this. But the truth is, where there's a will, there's a way. So I don't know the uh, technicalities of how this would be implemented on a practical level. My guess would be that the federal government and or Canada's provincial governments have some jurisdiction over service providers or web hosting companies and that sort of thing. And so um, where there's a will, there's a way. If they're intent on on censoring our speech on the internet, then I'm sure they'll find ways to target Canadian companies, Canadian individuals, Canadian uh, web hosting platforms, Canadian service providers, Canadian companies, uh, for that matter, uh, I'm sure that they will find a way to do it. Now, there's a bit of a safety valve in that, presumably, this is not going to take away the ability of Canadians to go and visit US websites. And there could maybe be some, uh, <laughs> I just see somebody in the United States setting up a Canada chats, <laughs> yeah. you know, website, and then all the Canadians go to this American website. So there could be ways to circumvent it, but that That's doesn't diminish happening, the, by the way. I, I'm sure it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, te- I'm a dinosaur with technology, but I, I take your word for it. I'm sure there's lots of Canadians already using American sites to discuss Canadian politics, but that doesn't take away how pernicious this is. Because if, obviously, if you're going to, uh, uh, if you're going to censor speech online, you're not going to have any problems censoring the speech at a peaceful public rally, a peaceful protest. You're not going to have any qualms about censoring that speech to make sure it's not, quote, 
hateful, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Well, I also want to point out, you know, their justification here is pretty thin because we don't really have all the facts yet on this riot. And like I say, it wasn't a social media event anyway. So just because Twitter decided to react uh, by uh, banning the, uh, I think it was a video of the president calling for everybody to go home peacefully and labeling it as a, an incitement to violence, that is no excuse to regulate speech in Canada. I mean, it was just, there was an in through the outdoor incident. That's exactly what happened, by the way. That's uh, definitely right. provable. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, what they're doing is they're trying to exploit, in my opinion, they're trying to exploit uh, something that was amped up by the American media as, uh, I don't know, an event that was worthy of impeaching the U.S. president. And then they're going to use that to sort of justify their social media policies, which, you know, they, they, they want to criminalize dissent. That's just my layman's opinion. How about you, Mr. Lawyer? It's, it's easier to defend free speech in the United States because their constitution and the way it has been interpreted by the United States Supreme Court and so many other courts is that the U.S. is very, very strong on protecting free speech. And uh, this is something that even the you know left-wingers or liberals in the United States to some extent are are still buying into the notion that you know yes we need free speech well in and in, in fact the uh, Canadian Civil Liberties Association and the Ontario Civil Liberties Association and the BC Civil Liberties Association uh, are all very good on free speech and that's to their credit mm-hmm. uh, there's a bunch of other issues where they've uh, really abandoned their mission uh, but you know we've seen the uh, pro choice civil liberties groups defending free speech rights of pro-lifers in Canada, and that's the way it should be. One closing comment on this, uh, everything I've said about hate also applies to extremism because, again, Trudeau says to his minister to take action on combating hate groups and online hate and harassment, ideologically motivated violent extremism, and terrorist organizations. Well, there's a difference between advocacy for violence, which is already illegal under the criminal code, but then you get this whole notion of extremism, and it's kind of like hate. I mean, who gets to decide what is extreme? Uh, does an opinion become extreme when its popularity falls below 10% of support amongst the public? Is that what makes an opinion extreme? Because only 10% of the people agree with that opinion, or 5% or 1%? Or does an opinion become extreme even when it's supported by 30%, 50%, 70% of the public, but our political and media elites have deemed the opinion to be, quote, extreme. So again, what this is about is having government decide on our behalf what is true, what is false, what is hateful, what is not hateful, what is right, what is wrong, so that we become like like children or worse, like cattle, and the government decides on our behalf what is true. And to protect us, the government will uh, make sure that we are kept safe by no longer having our free speech rights and no longer being able to hear what the government elites don't want us to hear, okay. which is, yes. I was going to say, what exactly are our protections? Tell us what our protections are. You say it's easier in the United States because they have it in the constitution. We have to have some kind of protection here in our bill of rights. No. Yes. We've got the charter protection and this would, uh, if, if the government passed these regulations, I Depending on, on, on what they say, there's a very good chance that the Justice Center would take this to court. We would argue that this violates our freedom of expression 
rights as protected under the Charter, Section 2B. The government would then admit, yes, this does violate free expression rights, and they would say this is justified as um, reasonable and necessary in a free and democratic society. And we would then have uh, the argument before the court would be whether or not this violation was justified. And we would argue, no, it's not, uh, for all the reasons that we've outlined in the past 15, 20 minutes. And the government would say, yes, this is justified. And that would, and then if you get in front of a, a judge who appreciates the free society and who understands what the free society is, is about and who oh. appreciates free expression. Now you're freaking uh, me out. <laughs> well, we have a judicial freedom index that, that demonstrates that okay. uh, some judges are more sympathetic to charter freedoms than others. And okay. that's, that's very clearly set out. Uh, you can look at their voting records. And so what is true of the Supreme Court of Canada, for which we've done the analysis, is also true of all of the courts in Canada. Some judges are more sympathetic to charter freedoms than others, and some judges tend to side with the complainant or plaintiff or applicant or challenger who is saying, look, uh, this law, I'm challenging this law for violating my charter rights and freedoms. Some judges tend to rule that way more often, and other judges tend to rule more often in favor of the government continuing with the violation of, of the charter rights. So it's really the luck of the draw. Oh, great. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll leave that for now. We still going to wait. Uh, they say they're going to come up with this stuff in February or March. Uh, we're going to address this again, obviously. Uh, you wanted to move on. I know that to another topic. And this one happens to be uh, related to the COVID lockdown situation in Ontario, we had a situation there where an MPP was uh, thrown out of caucus because of his public statements against the lockdown. Why don't you dive into that right away? Yes. Um, Ontario member of provincial parliament, Roman Baber, representative for York Centre, progressive conservative, turfed out of the PC caucus by Doug Ford. He is a hero and he is courageous. And I think what has gone on in Ontario in the past week since our last podcast is a game changer. I think there's going to be a lot of positives uh, flowing out of this. So Mr. Babber wrote a letter January 15th, 2021, addressed to Premier Ford regarding the lockdown is deadlier than COVID. I'm going to read sections of it. This is, this is so well worded. Uh, there's just no need to paraphrase it. Okay, just let us know when you're quoting. So I will. So I'm quoting now. So Mr. Babber says to Premier Doug Ford, the medicine is killing the patient. Ontario's hospital and ICU capacity are better than in the last three years. I write on behalf of my York constituents and plead for the millions of lives and livelihoods ruined by Ontario's public health restrictions. The lockdown isn't working. It's causing an avalanche of suicides, overdoses, bankruptcies, divorces, and takes an immense toll on our children. Dozens of leading doctors implored you to end the lockdowns. The lockdowns are objectively deadlier than COVID. For example, cancer screenings at Princess Margaret are back to 60%, with oncologists fearing a tsunami of cancer. Ontario's overdose rate is trending 50% above normal. According to the Canadian Mental Health Association, in September of 2020, 10% of adults reported recent thoughts or feelings of suicide, 
which is four times the normal rate of about 2.5%. Amongst Canadians aged 19 to 35, uh, the rate is 20% of people with recent thoughts or feelings of suicide. Think about that. 20% of young adults, uh, I know 35-year-olds maybe are doubting how young they are, but amongst Canadians aged 19 to 35, 20% have recent thoughts or feelings of suicide, and that's from the Canadian Mental Health Association. Sick Kids, so an organization, Sick Kids, is calling the increase of eating disorders in young people an unprecedented crisis. Tens of thousands of businesses are shut down. The the unemployment rate is nearly double, and 320,000 people have not regained work. So that's for Ontario, 320,000 people. Extrapolate that to the rest of the country, and you've got 1 million Canadians have not regained work. We are faced with a catastrophic wave of bankruptcies and foreclosures. The government is criminalizing normal human behavior and putting law-abiding Ontarians in legal jeopardy. Public, Public health cannot change human behavior. My heart breaks for the family of Damien Moses. Damien Moses, I'm not quoting now, was a young man who committed suicide after being arrested by police in Ontario for uh, allegedly violating the lockdown uh, lockdown measures. So he has a chart here. Um, this is from the Center for Disease Control, the United States uh, Central Medical Agency. Infection fatality rate for people with covid is um, (laughs) for people from newborns to age 19, it's 0.00003% is the death rate uh, on the the under 20s. So, you know, next to nothing. Even for 20 to 49-year-olds, it's 0.0002%, right? So of a whole, it's 0.0002%. So again, tiny number of people dying age 20 to 49, Uh, even 50 to 69, it's 0.005%. And then in uh, age of 70 and up, it is one half of 1%. So what he says is COVID is real, but the fear of COVID is exaggerated. And that is absolutely backed by data from Alberta and uh, every Canadian province and countries all over the world is that COVID is real, but the fear of COVID is exaggerated. He points out, now I'm quoting again, regretfully, since the start of the pandemic, about 5,000 Ontarians have died from or with COVID. 80% of all COVID deaths occurred in group living settings. Of all the 5,000 deaths in Ontario, over 3,000 died in long-term care, where victims were on average in their last year of life. We should focus on and fix long-term care. Approximately 70% of all Ontarians who died uh, with or or from COVID were over age 80. While we mourn every death, only 200 people or 4% of all deaths were under age 60 and zero children died from COVID in Ontario. And now it gets even more interesting. He quotes from the Ministry of Health, Ontario's hospital capacity is better than pre-pandemic. So there's a, there's a chart here, uh, daily average Ontario intensive care unit occupancy. December 2017, the daily average is 87%. 
Okay, so the intensive care units, 87% of them are used up. Uh, that That's the daily average in December of 2017. December of 2018, uh, 91% of ICU capacity is being used up. December 2019, it drops down to 84%. So, you know, high, but you still have 16% of intensive care capacity is still available. In 2020, it drops further down to 81%. December 2020, just last month, uh, ICU capacity in Ontario was used up to the tune of 81%. Uh, Further, on January 4th, 2021, the ICU occupancy rate was 81%, with uh, COVID taking up only 16% of total ICU beds. So yes, uh, there are some hospitals in Ontario and Alberta and everywhere else that are uh, flooded and and overcrowded uh, and beyond capacity. And I know that to be true as one of the doctors I'm in touch with, you know, tells me about that on a regular basis. However, uh, and now I'm not quoting from the letter. This is normal in Canada. It's sad, but it's normal. We've had hallway medicine for years and years and years. Hospitals have been overrun. We have a terrible healthcare system. Uh, we've had we've had the unions uh, promoting the big lie that Canada has the best healthcare system in the world. Have you heard that one before? Oh, well, no. <laughs> oh every, yeah, we've got every the best year in since the world. I've been alive. Sorry. So yeah, but the. Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is not a right-wing think tank, tells us that uh, Canada's healthcare spending is indeed the highest in the world or perhaps second place. But when it comes to how we spend that money, we come in uh, 7th and 21st and 17th and 13th uh, when it comes to things like hospital beds per capita, ICU spaces per capita, doctors per capita, nurses per capita. Uh, MRI machines per capita, CT scanners per capita. On all of the performance outcomes, we are failing miserably because we're coming in 5th and 10th and 15th and 20th, but our spending is the highest in the world. So we've got a really poorly run, poorly managed healthcare system. And now politicians are asking us to uh, consent to the violation of our basic human dignity to be able to spend time with friends and to have Christmas dinner with our parents because they couldn't get their act together and fix the healthcare system in the last 30 or 40 years. And it's dishonest to pretend, as the politicians and chief medical officers are doing, that this is somehow because of COVID, our hospitals are overrun. No, our hospitals are overrun because politicians don't want to take on the established powers and bring in the necessary reforms. But, uh, you know, I mean, the criticism was that that he was he's thrown out a caucus for telling the truth, because I don't think he said anything that isn't true here. I mean, he's citing government. Wait, fears. wait till I get to the rebuttal. Oh, well, I, can't I wait. know, but I mean, why, <laughs> why was he throwing up? Because he just sort of disagreed with the policy and presented, exposed them for what they are. Is that it? Just kind of touchy, are they? What what Premier Ford would say if he was, uh, you know, joining us as a guest is he would say that. Uh, that was not the time or the place to say these things publicly. They were being discussed in caucus and uh, in caucus, people can speak freely and they can articulate their concerns, uh, but it's not appropriate to say this outside of the secret caucus meetings. Why COVID uh, might get mad. <laughs> yeah. And my response to what I think Premier Ford would say is that 
it's exactly in the public arena that we should be having this debate and discussion. And we've had way too little of it because what the politicians are doing, and shortly I'll, I'll uh, refer to the the so-called fact sheet that the Ontario government produced to rebut and refute Mr. Babber's claim. Oh, yeah. But this is exactly the debate that we need in public. This is why it's terrible that you've got colleges of physicians and surgeons, and we might have time to tackle this next week, but I mean, the Alberta College of Physicians and Surgeons is sending out chilling messages to Alberta doctors, basically telling them that they they need to publicly endorse uh, whatever our chief medical officer, Dina Hinshaw, is saying. And uh, I want to tackle that next week because it's a government body. Do they know why? We're going to, uh, da- we'll do it next week. Okay. We'll, we'll do it next it. week. <laughs> Good, okay. I'll see if I can find some reasons why they're doing that. So I'll close off by reading. So now I'm back to quoting uh, Mr. Babber's letter. The lockdown is having catastrophic effects on Ontario's children. Constituents tell me that their children developed anxiety. We are scaring children, even though they are 100% safe. The government should also follow the advice of sick kids. Again, it's an organization. The government should also follow the advice of sick kids against masking kids at school. The crisis is in long-term care homes, not schools. Premier, we should stop scaring children. This generation of kids will grow up with an anxiety disorder and will be afraid of normal life. Kids need to be kids again, back in school with their friends. They should not believe that coming close to another child may result in someone's death. It's false and unwarranted. Conclusion is a proposed exit strategy. Number one, end the lockdown and let Ontarians go back to normal life. That's the best thing for their health. Number two, focus on long-term care and proper IPAC. I don't know what that stands for. Um, Focus on long-term care and proper IPAC instead of imprisoning 15 million Ontarians. With vaccinations, all of long-term care residents in Ontario's red zones by January 21st, there's much less justification for the lockdown. Number three, build additional hospital capacity, such as the facility at Joseph Brandt, and train ICU nurses. Number four, restore health care by ending emergency protocols except for long-term care. Ontarians need health care back. Oh, sorry, side tangent. Uh, this is, again, another one of the lockdown harms they shut down healthcare to people that need it. And so we get things like, you know, people not finding out about their cancer diagnosis until it's too late. Okay, back to the letter. Point number five, end the spread of fear and panic. It's unjustified and causes considerable stress, especially on children. The lockdowns aren't working. They are killing lives instead of saving lives. I plead with you to accept this reality and end the lockdown. I wrote this letter with my greatest respect to you and our colleagues, yours very truly, Roman Babber, MPP. So he gets kicked out of caucus because uh, Premier Ford uh, thinks that the public, you and I and our listeners, we should not be debating any of these issues. There should be no public debate because there's one truth imposed by government. And this makes Premier, Premier Ford, he's got that same attitude, that same mentality that Justin Trudeau has when he wants to censor the internet. So that the government's going to decide what is the truth and the government's going to enforce that and impose that. Now, admittedly, this is different. Uh, it is very different in the sense that member of provincial parliament, uh, Roman Babber, is not having his free speech rights violated. So that's good. But I'm sure that Doug Ford would, if Doug Ford could, 
silence this guy and say, look, we've got the truth. The government has the truth. The truth is that lockdowns are good and they're working and we need everybody to buy into it. We need everybody to stay home. We need we need obedient cattle to comply uh, in blind faith and just assume that they're being told the truth. And so when you speak publicly against lockdowns, obviously, I mean, Premier Ford is correct. This kind of a letter by Roman Babber is going to lead to less compliance in the same way that perhaps these podcasts that you and I are doing have the, the effect or the impact of less compliance. Well, then I say, you know, government, stop being a crybaby, get your act together and produce the, the evidence that show that the lockdowns are working and that they are necessary and that they are truly the best way to deal with a virus. But no, and now I'm going to turn to the fact sheet. I am looking at a document that was sent out by the Ontario Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. And on the left-hand column, it says claim. It doesn't say Mr. Babber. But when you read it, it is uh, pretty clearly they're trying to uh, refute and rebut the claims made by Mr. Babber in his January 15th letter. So on the left, it says claim. And on the right, it says correction. So first first claim of Mr. Babber, hospital occupancy is better than pre-pandemic. <laughs> and the response here is unbelievable. They lay out a whole bunch of facts and statistics that actually say the same thing that Mr. Babber is saying. Uh, so, for example, they're looking at um, ICU occupancy for Toronto and surrounding areas. And so they have they have some hospitals like the Humber River Regional Hospital uh, is at 96% capacity. Okay, yes, that's higher than 2017 to, to 2019. Uh, but then they have the North York General Hospital ICU capacity at 83%, which is lower than in the previous three years. Again, Mr. Babber's chart, which he's basing on Ontario uh, government data, is that the ICU was used up uh, 87%, 91%, 84% .84 in 2017-2018-2019. Uh, and then in December of 2020, it was 81%, which is lower than in the preceding three years. So that's Mr. Babber's data. So the government is supposedly trying to refute his claim. And then they give us a chart where they say that the Toronto uh, occupancy is at 89%. Okay, so they're disagreeing with his 81%. Uh, but it's still lower than what it was in 2018 at 91%. And there's all kinds of hospitals here that have, you know, 83%, 75%, 81%. The William Osler Health Center, 65% uh, ICU capacity. The Lake Ridge Health Corporation, Bowmanville, 50% ICU capacity. The Halton Healthcare Services Corporation, Georgetown site, 67% ICU capacity. And South Lake Regional Health Center, 75% capacity. Now, there are a few that are at 100%. Uh, the worst seems to be the Halton Healthcare Services Corporation, Oakville Trafalgar Memorial Hospital, ICU capacity at 110%. Uh, Markham Stouffville Hospital, 110%. So yes, there are uh, two hospitals here that are um, actually three, five hospitals in Ontario are at 100% or more. And again, that's even... Even there, that's not different from what has been going on for, for the past years where you have overflowing hospitals and overflowing ICU. 
This is something that politicians have failed to clean up. And rather than owning up to this failure, they are asking you and me and all of our listeners to give up our rights and freedoms and to live under house arrest. It's perverse. So this is, this is almost a microcosm of what's been happening for the last 10 months. When the government does come out with data, it actually supports the anti-lockdown arguments because they have not in any way, shape or form refuted or rebutted Mr. Babber's uh, argument. Next claim in the uh, Ontario government fact sheet, uh, they quote Mr. Babber as saying that COVID-19 mortality rate is extremely low, uh, that it's uh, you know, point, uh, 0.054 in the over 70s. Then they go on and they provide a chart. <laughs> it's hilarious. They're, they're, they're once again proving and supporting Mr. Babber's point that total deaths from COVID-19, so out of... Um, uh, out of uh, 5,000 or so people, uh, you know, we have six deaths in the 20 to 29-year-old. Uh, these are deaths, these include deaths with COVID, not necessarily of COVID. Uh, so you have six deaths in the 20 to 29, 14 deaths in 30 to 39. Age 40 to 49, we have 44 deaths. Age 50 to 59, we have 158 deaths. Uh, and again, this is out of 5,000 people. And this is in a context where you've got 115,000 people die every year in Ontario. So every month in Ontario, you've got 9,500 people who die, right? So out of 115 deaths in a year, you've got 5,000 deaths from COVID and 110 deaths from other causes, which obviously tells any thinking person, well, this is not an unusually deadly killer if you've got normally, uh, you would expect deaths to go up, right? If, if every year there's 115,000 people dying, and then one year you've got a pandemic, and instead of 115 people, it's 145,000 people that die. It's like, wow, now you've got a serious problem because your, your deaths just jumped by 30,000 per year. That's an increase in deaths. Uh, there's no increase in deaths with COVID, uh, as, we, as the Justice Center has explained in our Flying Blind report. Yeah, the most... Considerable finding that uh, uh, was, well, I would say surprising finding for me, the fact that there was no increase in deaths. And that, and that was backed up by other jurisdictions as well. I think they uh, we pointed out when we covered the flying blind that uh, the U.S., uh, there was a study that was uh, done that found similar things. And it was a recategorization of deaths, that is the cancer deaths and Flu deaths and all of that were with COVID. It doesn't shorten. It, it has very little impact on life expectancy, unlike the annual flu, because the annual flu kills children ages zero to five or from birth to five. Right. Every year, there are children, very young children, who die of the annual flu. COVID is not killing any young children. Uh, three quarters of the COVID deaths are people in, in nursing homes uh, in their 80s who have uh, who are already dying of, of cancer, heart disease, emphysema, literally three or more serious health conditions is what 75% of the people dying with COVID had. So the impact on life expectancy is minimal. And some would say, well, it's callous to point that out. And I said, no, absolutely not. Uh, if, if someone who's dear and precious to you dies, it's a horrible thing to go through. The big question is, 
Is it less sad if somebody with cancer and emphysema and heart disease, uh, they die two or three months earlier than what they would have? Is that less sad? I mean, the sadness is that the person dies. That's the sadness. But the impact on life expectancy is negligible. This is not having COVID-19 is not having an impact on the life expectancy of Canadians. And that's not my opinion. That's what the government data and statistics tell us. So again, the Ontario government is is confirming that uh, Mr. Babber is correct. The next point that they want to refute and rebut, uh, this is probably my favorite. Um, Roman Babber said that Ontario overdose rate is trending 50% above normal. <laughs> Can you guess what the government said in response to try to blow him out of the water? Go ahead. They Shock said, me. they said, no, overdose deaths have increased by 38% since the start of lockdowns. Oh, okay. Touche. This is, <laughs> this is how they refute his argument. He says, yeah. he says that it's, that overdose deaths are trending 50% above normal and their great defense to blow this guy out of the water is to say, no, it's not 50%. It's 38%. Okay. I, I rest my case because we've got Roman Babber saying that overdose uh, deaths are trending 50% above normal. And, and the response to the government is no, it's 38%. So lockdowns are killing people. Thank you, Ontario government for confirming Mr. Babber's point. The next one that they try to target is, oh, and by the way, they throw in uh, recognizing the significant impact on people's mental health and challenges with addictions. Our government has increased funding this year by historic amounts. We now have 370 million more being spent on mental health services. You know, like we don't need to spend the extra 370 million if we just end the lockdowns. And where does this money come from? Like how long do these people think we can continue running the healthcare system and running uh, all government programs, roads, bridges, courthouses, uh, schools, etc., on free money? There is no such thing as free money. It's got to be repaid. So, what next are you point. suggesting? There's no plan here. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. So the next point of uh, so Mr. Babber said there has been an avalanche of suicides. Here's the government's response uh, based on preliminary data and analysis. The office of the chief coroner for Ontario has not observed an increase in the number of suicides that occurred from. January 2020 to June 2020 when compared with data from recent years. Okay. Uh, one thing I've learned uh, through my work on the Flying Blind report that we released in December, uh, which a credit to the research team, which you know did 90 or 95% of it. I was involved. I don't want to take credit for the report because other people did most of the work. But um, one thing we learned is that the death data trickles in very slowly. So when Statistics Canada has its death stats up, they are gradually revised from month to month and they put up what they have available, right? And you could get a batch of new results coming out of Manitoba or Quebec. And so they add those. So those figures are constantly changing. So we don't yet have the suicide figures. Secondly, suicide figures are harder than uh, other causes of death because 
of several factors. One is that family members are understandably, justifiably reluctant to admit or come to terms with, you know, that this was a suicide or that this may have been a suicide. Uh, because that's, for many people, it's much more painful uh, that, that somebody committed suicide as opposed to a car accident death, not minimizing the horrific grief that is inflicted on people with a car accident death, right? But, but a suicide death is something that people have a hard time grappling with. Apart from that, it's hard to know, right? If somebody dies of a drug overdose, do you really know if it was accidental, like they were just trying to, you know, get high, but they didn't want to kill themselves? Or what if it was uh, a suicide? We don't know. Uh, same thing with a crazy car accident. Uh, if the guy was down and out and depressed, uh, maybe it was a you know, desperate suicidal move to drive into a telephone pole uh, and, and not a true accident. We don't really know. Can, but Can I just interject here? It seems to me, I have read, that there is a correlation between lockdowns and suicide rates. And this is a noted fact around the world. Are they suggesting now that Ontario is the exception to this? Is that what yeah, they're perhaps trying to that's, Perhaps that's their argument. But they're, they're yeah. saying, well, we don't know based on data from January to June. Okay. Well, you have to consider this as well. The lockdowns were not imposed until the middle of March. So we only have two and a half months of this January to June period. The other thing that's very, very significant is that the longer the lockdown goes on, the more people experience anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts, because you would expect with all the loneliness and isolation and unemployment, if that's been going on for only two and a half months, uh, yes, you might see a small increase in suicides, but when it's been going on for 10 months, you're going to see much more of it. So again, the government has no basis for refuting that there's been an avalanche of suicides. And I don't think we can discount all of the anecdotal evidence that we hear about, you know, a friend, a friend of a friend or, or uh, you know, a friend of a family member and, and so on. So they don't really refute that. The next, uh, the next Babber claim uh, is that Ontario has 492 hospitals. And uh, the government's response is to say, that, you know, no, we have 228 hospital sites across the province, not 492. Well, thank you, Ontario government, for refuting Mr. Babber's case that the lockdowns are harmful and are killing people and should be brought to an end. Their response is, well, he was incorrect. He said there's 492 hospitals, but actually there's only 228. Well, you know, again, if... I, I hope I hope that when we sue Ontario, they're going to come up with this quality of evidence when they come into court. <laughs> it's like, right on. It's like, okay, so Mr. Babber got one of his numbers wrong. Um, you know, for the, they could be sure all the listeners just just remember, Ontario does not have 40, 492 hospitals, as claimed by Mr. Babber. There are only two hundred and twenty-eight hospital sites in Ontario. They might bring their A team when you go to court. This isn't okay. A team stuff. <laughs> And now, and now for the grand finale, the closing argument in the government's case. <clears throat> okay. Princess Margaret is misspelled. It's spelled Princess Margaret Cancer Center. Wow. 
<laughs> so that's just, that just that's the nail in the coffin. That blows. That. That's the nail in the coffin. That's the nail in the coffin for Mr. Babber. He he misspelled uh, Margaret uh, because it's uh, correct spelling is Margaret M A R G A R E T, and Mr. Babber just shot himself in the foot and completely blew his case against the lockdowns because he spelled it mis- uh, the princess Margaret M A R G R E T. So he he missed an A. Mm-hmm. So now we know the guy has no credibility and everything that he's had to say about, uh, let's take a look here, suicides, overdoses, bankruptcies, divorces, children's mental health, and so on. Uh, obviously, that's got no legitimacy because he he misspelled Margaret. Now, uh, just asking your opinion as a lawyer, are misspellings admissible in court? They're not legally relevant. I mean, lawyers are... Uh, this may come as a surprise to you, but lawyers are sometimes quite ruthless and they're quite nasty to each other, even in court battles. So um, you might see something like you'll have, let's say, the the plaintiff files a statement of claim and there's a spelling mistake, mm-hmm. right? And then the statement of defense uh, will say, you know, it's just snarky. Uh, the statement of defense might say that uh, the plaintiff uh, incorrectly uh, spells Mr. Smith uh, S-M-I-T-H uh, when in fact in this litigation it's Mr. Smythe uh, S-M-Y-T-H right you'll get snarky little comments so in that, there about spelling errors that's what you see this as is a snarky little comment is that how you're uh, well no you characterized it as the icing on the cake actually but I think you were being a little bit sarcastic there John so <laughs> we can leave that one be this situation uh Let's call it Babber versus Ford. This is a microcosm of what's been happening in Canada in the last 10 months. The people opposed to lockdowns. Yeah, 10 months of lockdowns, which you you better start looking at this as the permanent removal of your charter rights and freedoms. Uh, because I, we're at the point now where if, if you think that, uh, if you think that our charter rights and freedoms are getting restored anytime soon, you're naive. Because there's no standard that has been set, to my knowledge, by any government in Canada, federal or provincial, as to when these measures will be lifted. All we have are vague allusions to when the case numbers get low enough. It's like, low enough? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm going to stop committing adultery when my marriage gets bad enough? (laughs) You know? Like, it's it's just... uh, it it's crazy. I don't know why anybody would buy into this. There's there's no standard other than case numbers getting low enough. And the problem with the case numbers is that they are based on a faulty uh, PCR test, the results of which are meaningless. Uh, you could get a you could test uh, negative for COVID and you might have it. You get uh, tested positive for COVID, you might not have it. This test was never designed to diagnose COVID, and the results of it are meaningless. And useless. No, they're meaningful to the government and to the media. Well, yeah, without, and where's the science on that? You know, and when you ask government questions, when you ask them to produce the science, uh, just last week, we'll do a a weekly MLA update. Um, Just yesterday, in fact, uh, I emailed my um, elected uh, member of the Legislative Assembly for the, the, the district in Calgary where I live. And I said, can you please send me the science on asymptomatic spread? 
because the government lockdown measures are predicated on the notion that asymptomatic people, so healthy people without symptoms, that we are spreaders of the virus. And hence, we have to have social distancing and masks, and we need to shut down businesses, and we need to close schools, et cetera, et cetera. It's all predicated on this notion that asymptomatic people are spreaders. So I've asked, can you send me the, the medical and scientific evidence that supports your position, your assumption that asymptomatic people are spreaders of the virus? Now, I'll predict right now, uh, can I ask the same question once a week? I, I'm not going to get an answer from the government on asymptomatic spread and what is their position. Of course, that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is the falsehood that we should all be afraid of COVID because it's an unusually deadly killer. That's the biggest falsehood that's driving the agenda. And until we can stop the fear, uh, we're going to keep on being in big trouble in terms of, of being a, a free and democratic society that respects human dignity and respects our, our fundamental rights as, as human beings to do things like spending time with friends and singing in church and having our children attend school and so on and so forth. Yes. Well, they seem to be ramping up the um, the rhetoric and uh, the scare tactics, at least overseas. I simply want to mention this story so I can post it in the show notes. And that was the uh, the story about Germany, where they were talking about uh, slapping people in camps that either uh, ignore the uh, the restrictions or uh, dissent. There was a Daily Mail story uh, where they showed picture after picture of coffins. Just piles of coffins. Some of them they showed had scrawled, you know, scratched into the wooden coffin, COVID. And this reminded me very much of what they did at the beginning of the pandemic with Wuhan. Uh, they showed rows and rows of these cremation urns and they, oh boy, is this much worse than everybody thinks it is? You know, they've just ordered 5,000 more cre cremation urns. This must be killing everybody. And well, of course, the numbers didn't really support it. Uh, but they, yeah, they... But Kevin, you have to you have to remember that until the pandemic hit the world in in early twenty, or sorry, in early twenty twenty, nobody ever died, right? So I mean, this is just shocking that people die. Mm. I mean, no, this, seriously, this is this is blatant fear mongering. It's not just in uh, Germany where people are getting uh, locked up. One of our lawyers. Oh, and by the way, thanks very much to all of our donors. We have now hired two new lawyers. Uh, both of them based in Ontario. So we now have nine staff lawyers in total. Thanks to the generous support of Canadians. Uh, please donate at www.jccf.ca. Uh, so we've got two more lawyers, nine lawyers working for freedom all across Canada. One of our lawyers is in touch with a gentleman, uh, David Shurgeon, or Shurjon. I don't know how it's pronounced. I'm sorry. S-H-E-R-J-A-N. Shurjon, perhaps. Uh, being held at Calgary Quarantine Facility, the Western Hotel, against his will. And so our lawyer is in touch. He sent us an email on uh, Tuesday, January the 19th, and says, Help, last night I returned to Calgary, having been in the U.S. for a month. I had no idea they had rushed the mandatory PCR testing nonsense for air travelers. Last night I was told that, and then it trails off. Um, I don't, I just have a printout of the web link. Um, so he, he says, uh, I'm, I'm in need, I'm in need of urgent, urgent COVID-19 legal advice and being held at a Calgary quarantine facility against my will. No joke. How can I reach you, please? 
So, uh, this is his third day in forced quarantine. So, I'm not sure uh, how far into details I can go because these are communications back and forth uh, between uh, an individual and our lawyer. And um, Fair enough. The point is that uh, we've got people being locked up. And, you know, up until 10 months ago, the worst criminals, uh, people that might kidnap and rape and torture and kill a child had legal rights to not be arbitrarily arrested and detained. They had a right to counsel. They had a right to remain silent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we've had strong rights in place for anybody criminally charged with, and even provincially charged, you have these rights as well with, uh, you know, when you're, when you get a speeding ticket, you have a right to uh, remain silent, you know, beyond a statutory requirement that you provide your your driver's license and car insurance. You're not obligated to to speak to the police officer. You have a right to go to trial and to force the crown to make its case and to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you committed the offense. So you have all these procedural protections, even for a speeding ticket. But now we've got people that are locked up without any procedural due process, locked up for days. Uh, and for they're getting away with it. How? I mean, we we've got nine lawyers, and we're going to have to hire a, a lot more to uh, to take on these cases because there's going to be a lot of cases, and we're going to fight this tooth and nail because this is outrageous that uh, that somebody who's criminally accused, criminally charged with a crime, uh, has far more rights than just a citizen that just crossed the border and came back into. Canada. And again, the, these PCR tests are meaningless and they do not provide reliable data for incarceration. And we're going to force uh, every government in Canada to produce that medical and scientific evidence uh, in that regard. But, you know, they should be producing it now. There's no reason why they can't put this forward to the public and say, oh, yeah, OK, we'll tell you. Here's our scientific basis for uh, believing in the in the PCR tests. Uh, here's our scientific basis for believing that asymptomatic people are dangerous spreaders. Here's the data that supports our belief that COVID-19 is an unusually deadly killer that we should all be very afraid of. They should be producing that evidence right now. Uh, unfortunately, it looks like we're going to have to wait until these court actions get underway. And then finally, finally, uh, the government's going to have to put its evidence forward in court. And finally, they're going to have to answer questions in court. This is not how it should be. They should be intellectually honest and they should have integrity now and produce this information now. Right. Well, in, in the government's defense, I should say that probably the reason that they don't want to produce that is because it's complete BS. <laughs> That's a, Yeah. Uh, to government, do not do not hire Kevin as your defense counsel. You know, <laughs> your Honor, the reason we were withholding evidence is because our our evidence is complete BS. So this, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never went to the law school. Okay, fair enough. Okay, uh, I guess we'll call it in to uh, season two, episode three. Thanks a lot, John, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Keep fighting the good fight. All right, talk to you next week. 